This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. For more than 100 years, China embarked on a movement of forced secularization with most religions heavily persecuted or banned. But religion is now back at the center of Chinese society and politics with the country awash with new temples, churches, and mosques, as well as cults, sects, and politicians trying to harness religion for their own ends. Churches are being demolished and Muslims forced to attend re-education camps while the government is also promoting Buddhism and folk religion. How to reconcile these contradictory claims? To help us sift through that, our guest today on Church Life Today is Ian Johnson, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer focusing on society, religion, and history. Ian Johnson works out of Beijing for the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and other publications. He teaches undergraduates at the Beijing Center for Chinese Studies and has served as an advisor to academic journals and think tanks such as the Journal of Asian Studies, Berlin-based think tank Merics, and New York University's Center for Religion and Media. He is the author of several books, including The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao. He joins us on Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Ian Johnson, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Ian, your most recent book, The Souls of China, tells the story of what you describe as one of the world's great spiritual revivals. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what this revival is and how it has taken place in China. Well, one way to think of it is it's a return to levels of spirituality and religious belief that existed traditionally in China, just like Mm -hmm. in, I guess, every society, but which came under attack in the 19th and 20th centuries as China was going through a series of crises uh, stemming from foreign invasions. And there was a huge crisis of confidence in China. And as in other countries around the world, people thought religion was a problem, that religion was backward, superstitious, uh, that it wasn't compatible with having a modern, strong state. We saw this um, also in Turkey, for example, where Mm -hmm. Ataturk, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, imposed a radical, top-down, secularist vision of of Islam. And um, other countries dealt with things differently. India in its struggle against Britain, adopted spiritualism. Gandhi, mm-hmm. you know, clothed himself as a spiritual sort of guru. And, but in China, religion, especially Chinese religion, was seen as part of a problem, um, that it was, that, you know, Chinese religion was not real religion. Buddhism, Taoism, folk religion was all superstitious. And so there was, predating the communist takeover in 1949, a concerted effort to close down temples and uh, things like that. Christianity in the initial phase, up until, say, the mid-20th century, was exempt from that. Christianity mm. was seen as a, a real religion, and you had many leaders in China at the time who were uh, Christian. Chiang Kai-shek had converted to Christianity through his wife's family, which were Protestants. Uh, Sun Yat-sen, the person sort of credited with uh, overthrowing the last dynasty, the Qing dynasty, he was a Christian also. And I think the first parliament of China uh, had something like 25 to 30 percent of the members were Christian. Which oh, really? Is, uh, that is surprising. Very surprising because yeah. at that time Christianity would have been less than one percent of the population. Hmm. So Christianity was sort of exempt, but then when the communists took over in 1949, they 
viewed basically all religions as a problem that had to be uh, managed very, very tightly. And then this, of course, culminated in the Mao era, the Cultural Revolution from 1966 uh, to 76, when basically all public religious life was banned. Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen in the 40 years roughly since then is a revival of religion that I think has really picked up pace, especially over the past decade. Um, and again, this goes, this runs maybe counter to the typical modernization theory that as people get more prosperous and wealthier, they should be less interested in religion. But I think that as the basic survival issues have been solved for the vast majority of Chinese people, so the vast majority of Chinese people have enough to f eat, uh, drink, clothing, shelter, those problems have been solved. You're left with then the sort of uh, eternal questions of mm -hmm. what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? How to live a good life? What's the meaning of all this? Why do we have this money? You know, and, and this has led to a revival of all religions in China. Um, and I think that that's, so that's, that's sort of where we're at now, I think, with, you know, maybe 400, 500 million people in China out of 1.4 billion people participating in regular religious practice. So as a percentage of the population, that's maybe only about a third. Mm -hmm. But when you consider where it was 40 years ago, it's taken off. So one thing that comes to mind is here in the United States, especially and probably throughout much of the, the West, there's been the rapid rise of disaffiliation from religion. Would it be fair to say in China, it's, a, it's something of the opposite movement of a reaffiliation that's taking place? Yeah, I think in China, you, you do see similar trends uh, where there's more sort of do-it-yourself religion where right. people take a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, That's easier. Let's it's honest. easier, it's so yeah. Easier, you know, you don't yeah. need to be so rigorous and you just uh, fancy yourself to be inspired by Tibetan Buddhism. For example, a lot of Han Chinese, uh, ethnic Chinese people are very in inspired by Tibetan mm -hmm. Buddhism. Uh, similar in the West, actually, where Tibetan Buddhism, you know, is sort of taking off among celebrities and people like that. Um, but I think it's also complicated because in China, the word religion is a neologism. This word in, in Chinese, zongjiao, to describe a part of society that's separate from the rest of society. Mm. This was something that was imported to China from Japan, which had gone through a similar phase about a generation earlier in the late 19th century. And so in China, there wasn't, like in a lot of traditional societies, there wasn't this idea of religion being something that you do a certain uh, time of the day or day of the week or, or something like that. It was sort of part of your daily life, um, spiritual beliefs. So this term, Zongjiao, or religion, has become laden with political meaning. And when you ask people about that, they tend to say, oh, I'm not a member of a religion. Because it's separate, because yeah, by be definition. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's something then very, very formal. They may think, well, you, do you mean I'm a member of a clergy? Mm. No, I'm not that. Mm -hmm. But then if you actually ask people what they do, uh, then you get much more interesting answers. And then, so people will say, go to a temple and pray. Um, but they may say, well, I'm not a member of a religion, even mm -hmm. though they're going regularly to a temple. So the word religion itself has become uh, sort of complicated, freighted with all these sort of baggage. Um, and it's much more interesting just to ask people what they, how they actually live their lives. Yeah. Now, I would say Christianity and Islam are different because in, in China, which has Christianity and Islam, obviously, um, those, the Abrahamic faiths are cl more clearly defined 
uh, faith in, in daily life. And most Chinese, say Christians or Muslims, will say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim. Okay. But in general, it's probably better, as you subtitle your book, to talk about a spiritual revival rather than a religious revival because it's a little bit too yeah. clear-cut. Um, yes, I think it's, it's easier to say. Okay. When you ask people about that, they prefer to use the word faith or belief, xinyang. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, which, of course, can mean things that are not really religious. It really depends, of course, how you define religion. Sure, sure, sure. So if this revival, would it be fair to say it's coming in some ways from the ground up? Like people have turned, as as you were mentioning, basic needs have been met. Um, and so people are turning to the eternal questions. What has been the view from the higher ups down below in right, terms well, of state, the state view or interest of yeah. spirituality or religion? Exactly. After, after the Cultural Revolution, so in the late 70s, and in the early 80s, the state allowed religious life to return. So it allowed the five faiths in China, the five legal faiths, so that would be Buddhism, Taoism, the indigenous religion mm-hmm. in China, Islam, and then for administrative purposes in China, Christianity is split and is treated as two faiths, Catholicism and Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Those five groups were allowed to come back. Um, all of them have officially run bodies. So there's the patriotic associations for the Buddhist, Taoist, Muslims, Protestants, and Catholics. Um, but the government sort of figured that this would be maybe a sop to the old people in society. And actually, in the early 1980s, there's this amazing document called Document 19 that speaks in exactly that language. Well, in the past, yeah. we were too harsh. We forbade religion. But now we're going to allow it to come back. But yeah. we know we're progressing towards socialism and communism and religion will die off. Uh-huh. But we'll allow – we won't use force anymore. We'll just allow it to die off naturally. So they allowed churches, temples, mosques to reopen thinking, though, that this would just be a, a fringe thing for old people. And when they, when those old people died off, no one that would That would believe. be the end. Yeah, yeah, that would be the end of it. Right. And the opposite happened. Uh. Uh, so you had this huge revival of people going. The churches were then packed, um, mosques and, and, and temples. And you've seen this huge increase in religious life in China mm. since then. Interesting. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We are talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ian Johnson, author of The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao. So I want to follow up on maybe on the one hand on Catholics, and then maybe this is interesting. We'll we'll talk about Muslims in China too in just Mm -hmm. a moment. But let me ask something about Catholics because in 2018 there was the well-documented deal that was struck between the Vatican and the Chinese government that had to do with – principally the appointment of bishops, as I understand it, um, and the reality in China of something of an underground church loyal to Rome and the state-approved church where the bishops were approved of and appointed by Beijing. This is still early. You know, this this deal came out in 2018. And as far as I understand, there's only been one bishop that's been appointed in this manner. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the significance of that deal and what the reality is on the ground, what you foresee coming in the future um, from this deal. Yeah, the, uh, there are roughly, depending on, on how you count or what sort of estimates you, you use, or say 10 to 12 million Catholics in China, about half of them worship in government-approved churches and half worship in the underground church. The issue for the underground Catholics is that they feel that the bishops, perhaps in their area, who have been only appointed by Beijing without approval uh, or blessing from, some, from Rome, that these bishops are not legitimate mm-hmm. and that therefore they can't worship in the, the, their churches. 
So hence they have the underground churches, um, many of them run by uh, bishops who have been approved by by Rome. And so you have had this binary structure that's been going on since the late 1970s, I would say roughly. Um, the effort is to bring these two together, to merge them. This predates the current pope. Uh, even Benedict wrote a letter to uh, Catholics in China saying that it's okay to worship, essentially saying it's okay to worship in government-run churches. Mm -hmm. They're legitimate. Uh, now you have this deal that all bishops going forward should be approved by Beijing and Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, the exact mechanism is not clear, but it's widely thought that there'd be, um, well, hopefully ahead of time, an agreement on a candidate through negotiation. This person's acceptable to both sides, or maybe one side would pick a couple or three and then give the list to the Pope to choose somebody. That way you could get rid of, say, maybe who's someone who's completely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. The details haven't been made public, so one is sort of left speculating a little bit. But the idea is that then new bishops would be approved by both sides. And this would theoretically then make the need for an underground church, uh, would eliminate the need for an underground church because all the, the clergy would be then approved by both sides. Uh, now, how this will really work out in the future is hard to tell. Mm -hmm. There's a backlog of bishops who need to be uh, consecrated, um, depending, you know, n numbers, estimates are 20, 30, uh, plus the overall clergy in China is, is aging. So there needs to be a rejuvenation of the clergy. Uh, now, this is the first uh, bishop in a series of bishops, say four or five, who are going to be approved every year for the next few years. And you can work off that backlog, and they all are approved so smoothly, then I think it would be a win-win situation. Um, if this is just a token effort by Beijing to say, yeah, we'll do this, and then they grudgingly approve one bishop a year, that doesn't help. Mm -hmm. um, the basic problem, I think, uh, or the challenge for an agreement like this is that each side has different goals. For Beijing, it's part of a broader effort to, to bring all aspects of society more tightly under government control. So they want, all, they, they want to eliminate the underground church by having all bishops approved by Beijing. Therefore, you don't need an underground church and everybody's worshiping in government-approved churches. Mm -hmm. uh, that's their goal. Uh, the Vatican's goal is to rejuvenate the church in China uh, because the number of Catholics is possibly, probably, according to some survey work, even declining. Um, Catholicism after 1949, when the communists took over, uh, was still overwhelmingly run by foreigners. The bishops, the heads of all the institutions were almost all foreigners. They were all kicked out. And Catholicism was sort of left without much leadership and became almost like um, a family-based uh, religion that was passed on through families and was overwhelmingly rural. Mm. Uh, and especially now as China is urbanizing, when people move to the big cities, the clergy isn't very dynamically working to bring them into the, keep them in the, in the fold. Mm. So there's a, a widespread recognition that the clergy needs to be rejuvenated that this religious revival is going on in China, uh, that Catholicism should take part in that. Uh, I think that's the Vatican's goal. Yeah. So these are really two different goals. Yeah. And how it plays out in the future, then, is kind of hard to see. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ian Johnson, author of The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao. What is the public role of a bishop 
in China? Is it comparable to, say, the role publicly of a bishop in the United States or elsewhere in the West? Is it different? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, all religious leaders in China are, I would say, basically absent from the public sphere. Hmm. So radio, television, internet, social media. They have no platform. You, they have no yeah. real platform. So they, if there are big events or crises in society, for example, this searching for faith and values in China, many people in China feel that society is purely materialistic, um, that there's a need for uh, more, yeah, some sort of values to unite people. You almost never hear religious leaders interviewed or mm. talking about that. So they don't have that kind of a public role. Um, it's much more or almost exclusively a pastoral role mm. in their communities. Interesting. Now, I wanted to ask also, so on the one hand, Catholics, but I also want to ask about Muslims in China because uh, at least some news has been made about uh, Muslims and re-education camps that are put on by the state um, for those of us on the outside, we hear something like that, a re-education camp, and we, we don't quite know a re-education program. We don't quite know what to make of that, or we have the worst possible interpretation of it. Is that correct? Should we have a bad interpretation of it? What is a re-education camp, and why are Muslims in particular right. being subjected well, to it? Yeah, it is extremely troubling. Uh, maybe just to back up, yeah. um, Muslims in China they are the only religion in China that are ethnically defined. Hmm. So when people give the number of Muslims in China roughly 20-odd million, um, which is not that high as a percentage of 1.4 right. billion people. But the, this is 10 ethnic groups that are, and if you add the population of those groups together, you get 23 million. Okay. So that's how that number is, is, is uh, achieved. Um, and that's why it's sort of an exact number, yeah. whereas the number of other religious believers is not very clear. Um, for w what interests the government the most is one specific group, the Uyghurs. This is a Turkic people who live in the western regions of China called Xinjiang, which uh, borders Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, even a bit touching Pakistan. So Xinjiang um, is a melting pot of several different groups, but it's the, the largest of them are the Uyghurs. Okay. Uh, they are yeah, Muslim people, rough, roughly 10 million. And there has been an independence movement. That area was recently uh, conquered relatively, I mean, historically seen relatively recently conquered by China just over the past couple hundred years. It was never very firmly under Chinese control. There were rebellions and revolts in the 19th and 20th centuries. And now there's still many people who feel that uh, there is no real autonomy. It's supposed to be an autonomous region where people have some sort of autonomy over daily mm -hmm. life. And this has led to a very small-scale terrorism problem, um, which I think really today doesn't really exist, but there have been a couple of terrorist attacks, two or three over the past decade. Um, I don't mean to minimize that, but when you compare that to other parts of the world with sure. serious daily you sure. know, car bombings or something like that, it doesn't really exist. But there, there is a, a real problem there. And the government um, has reacted in a draconian fashion of trying to enforce a very secular view of what Islam is. So they have, for, for example, forbidden university students from fasting during Ramadan. They have forced uh, halal restaurants to sell alcohol and pork just to show that they're not, you know, quote unquote, too Muslim, that other people can eat 
pork and drink beer or whatever you want to do. They are also um, women have not been allowed to wear the veil or the full veil. Mm-hmm. Men have been told they're not allowed to have beards or they shouldn't have beards that are too long, whatever that is. So it varies from area to area. Uh, mosques that didn't have government approval are being torn down. And then, of course, there are these re-education camps. Um, the government says they're job training uh, just to give people skill sets that they'll be forced to learn Chinese. But there's been a lot of very, very credible reports of people being forced to read the works of China's leader, Xi Jinping, uh, sing patriotic songs, uh, stay in these camps, essentially. Uh, but there's no, it's not like a real job training. They don't seem to come out with any marketable skill. The number of people, um, the number one million is often bandied around. Um, it's not really clear to me whether it's one million people total right now in mm-hmm. these camps, or I think it's probably more that a million have passed through these camps. Right. It doesn't really matter because I think it's, it's a terribly counterproductive measure um, that what you really need is a de-escalation in Xinjiang. Instead, of, you're getting an increasingly heavy-handed government response that's going to create a backlash. Yeah. Um, and I think this is um, a really unfortunate policy. We probably won't see the effects of this for 10, 20 years. But I think that if they wanted to stamp out radicalization, they're doing the opposite. Hmm. They're just going to create, among some people, uh, more radical views. So I, I'm, I think this is... But it's part of this overall idea that religion is a problem, and I think this is because of the religious revival, and that the state needs to be more assertive in handling religion. So if you can incorporate it into the state, it becomes not a problem. Right. But so long as it's separate from the state, and in this case, for Muslims, there are very uh, distinctive practices and taboos that would separate somebody from everybody else. Right. And that becomes the issue. That becomes the issue. Yeah, I think this, the, the, the issue is sort of also creating a Chinese culture. So a pan-Chinese culture that incorporates all 56 ethnic groups in China. Hmm. So there's one, the Han, the ethnic Chinese, mm-hmm. make up 91% of the population. The other 55 groups make up only 9% of the population. Uh, and But the idea is that we should all be unified as one people. Mm. But then what are the values and beliefs of, these, of this country? Yeah. Um, so the idea of having a multi-ethnic state isn't really acceptable to the government. They have these autonomous regions, but you, they are clearly uncomfortable mm. with these groups really being autonomous and having their own culture. So it's almost the anti-multiculturalism yes. going on. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you published an article, I think it was in September of 2019, under the title, What Holds China Together, mm-hmm. right? Which seems related to what you're talking about here. Like, I, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about the importance of that question, first of all. Like, what holds China together? Why that question? And why ask it, especially now, about China? Well, the challenge facing China is that the historic area where ethnic Chinese, Han Chinese have lived is a fairly well-contained area um, uh, from roughly Beijing in the north to Hong Kong in the south, the coast of China, say Shanghai, into Sichuan, the basin there. And that's where 90% of China, ethnic Chinese live. All the, But that's only about half of China's total territory. Mm. And the last dynasty, the Qing dynasty, was very successful in pushing out the borders of China to include especially areas like Tibet, Xinjiang, Mongolia, Manchuria, 
and to push to push it out. So you end up with this huge multi-ethnic empire, uh, and that worked in the Qing dynasty. With the Qing were fairly successful, uh, but. In a modern state, how do, how do you define a modern state? Mm. In the United States, for example, there's no one dominant ethnic group, uh, but it's considered a melting pot, and all people come in and they sort of believe they are. They take certain ideas that make them American. Mm-hmm. But what makes people Chinese? It's if it's Chinese culture, then that's an ethnically defined thing that doesn't work for the other groups. Right. Uh, especially, and it's especially sensitive because they're not evenly distributed around the country. They're in these remote border areas. So all of China's border has these uh, minority groups. That makes it then a geopolitical strategic issue for China. So I think the state is struggling to push the idea, just like the Soviet Union had the same issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it had all of these supposedly independent Soviet socialist republics, but they were it was essentially the old Russian Empire. Right. Um, and this is essentially the old... Chinese empire, but with new modern names, but it doesn't work in terms of uniting people on a gut level and an emotional level. I think there are ideas that could link all these people there together, but the state is pushing a much more narrow uh, way of defining Chinese-ness. Do you think it's too big to succeed China in this regard? No, I think that dividing up China into different uh, states would create a whole host of other problems, uh-huh. just as we saw when Yugoslavia broke up. And uh, that created a whole bunch of little tiny countries, right. but that wasn't necessarily better okay. either. Um, I mean, a lot of countries face this. Canada faces this. Should Quebec be independent or not? Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately what you do is you give people a real autonomy, uh, some sort of way of being inclusive and, mm-hmm. and running their own society. And then most of those independence movements die out naturally. It's when you don't do that that you end up with um, – unhappiness and even terrorism. Hmm. In parting, let me ask you just one last question. Um, You're so interested and attentive to the uh, intersection between religion and public life, politics. What do you see in the next decade or so as some of the most important or interesting stories regarding religion and society in China? Well, what I think is most interesting about this rise of religion and faith in China is that it's part of a global trend where people are seeking uh, meaning, uh, where they feel that maybe – and we, we see this in all of our societies. We mm-hmm. think it's only materialism. Everything is defined by the bottom line. Everything has to be run as if it's a company or it's not real. Uh, and a lot of people are sort of dissatisfied with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think – so Chinese are struggling the same way people in this country or Western Europe or other parts of the world are struggling with how to have – how to infuse their lives with value, with meaning, beyond simply getting rich. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's never been enough for any society, um, and it's not enough for China either. And I think seeing China part of this global conversation is interesting. Well, you've been listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. Our guest is Ian Johnson, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, author of The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao. Ian Johnson, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.
Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed. It's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?